Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. The title of my message about the Shifty Style is Let's Hang Out, Leave Me Alone. Let's hang out, leave me alone. This is one sentence, and if you are this style, you understand that that is one sentence that you feel all at the same time. Now, if you're kind of wondering, like, what does it feel like uh, to have a shifty or a scattered attachment style, it's sort of like this. Let's say that you, uh, you go to a work training event, and you, you, kind of, you don't really want to go, and it's like an all-day thing, and you go, and you sit down, and you end up sitting with somebody that you don't really know, but the whole time you're sort of making little sarcastic comments to each other about what's going on, and you're both making each other sort of laugh, and it, they, it kind of makes it fun, like you're enjoying it. And so because you're sort of clicking with this person, you decide you're going to exchange numbers because you, you know, may want to hang out later on. I mean, it's a big company, big organization, maybe you might want to get together. And then like, you know, when you get home, you tell the people that you live with, yeah, I met this like really cool person at work today and it was great. And we were like talking and stuff. And it's, they probably don't, didn't think it was great. It's probably just me who thought it was awesome. But then they text you like a GIF right then. Is it GIF or GIF? I, nobody knows for sure. And they text you, and it's like, and it's like this meme that is like an inside joke about something that you were laughing about during the training, and you're just like, I think that there's a little connection there. So you decide, let's let's just hang out um, at let's. There's a game coming up. It's a team you like. We'll catch a game. We'll get some wings, and you do, and you're laughing and making fun of the commercials and enjoying yourself and having drinks, and you're like, that was great, and you feel like you've made a new friend, and you're very excited. Uh, that was Friday. Monday, you go into work, and as you're walking in, you see them across the parking lot, and like you wave, and they wave, and in the back of your mind, you're like, I might text them to see if they want to get lunch. Yeah, but you don't. Instead, you eat drive through alone in your car, um, which actually you kind of like a little bit, and part of it is you're just like, is this relationship moving too fast? I mean, I know we're just friends, but it's like, it just feels like, I mean, I don't, we don't even really know each other, okay? We just met, and they probably wouldn't even want to go to lunch with me anyway, and so I'm not even put out there because it'll just be weird, and while you're thinking that, they text you and are like, hey, lunch plans today, and you don't want to tell them that you are eating alone in your car because that sounds sad and depressing, and they'll think you're weird, so you just don't reply at all because that feels like the safe bet. And so then they text a couple more times like, hello, you okay? And then you just text back a shrugging shoulders emoji Um, because you're just like, ah, that's funny. Um, Meanwhile, uh, you don't know this, but they think that maybe you're dead. Uh, They're not really sure. They're a little bit frightened. And uh, you just like, there's this thing in your mind as you're finishing lunch. You're just like, why do they even like me? You know, I don't really, I'm not that impressive and I just feel like maybe this is going to go south. Uh, it was great, but maybe it was just meant to be like a, you know, a training event sort of a thing. Over the next couple of weeks, they, they text you quite a few times. And every time you either ignore it, don't reply, or make up some excuse about why you can't get together or hang out with them. And you feel bad about it, but it just, it also kind of feels a little bit safe, you know, to you. And then a month later, uh, the team that you really like, that you watched the game with them uh, with the first time, is playing again. You're like, man, 
maybe they would want to catch a game. But you're like, it's weird just to reach out after having kind of ghosted them a little bit for like a month. Uh, and so you, you, you sort of like decide to hide it uh, by texting them something that's a little bit more, you know, it's not as like, you know, the two of us. So you're like, hey, a bunch of us are going to hang out and maybe watch this game. What do you think? And they text back, sure. And then you panic because there is nobody else. It's just you. And now you're like, dang it. And so now you're trying to round up other people, which is not really something that you're good at. And now instead of just watching a game, you are hosting a party now, which now feels like a lot of stress. And, 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 and like it comes down to it and everybody comes over and they're all having a good time and relaxed. And you are very anxious the whole time. Your butt cheeks do not unclench one time. You are like walking around, you are like, you're reading into everything that's happening, you feel nervous, everybody leaves, uh, you go to bed, you don't even clean up, you just go straight to bed, the next morning you wake up, you are completely emotionally and relationally exhausted. Meanwhile, everyone's blowing you up on this group text, being like, that was awesome, you should do it again, and just the thought of that feels so overwhelming to you to have to do that thing again, and so you text no one back. In fact, you call into work sick. You're not feeling great. You're sick to your stomach with anxiety. Then the person that like triggered the whole thing from the training event, they text like lunch next week, and you, you don't know what to do, and so you just reply back to them like, uh, and then shrug shoulders again, and then like probably not, and then they reply back two more times, and you're just like, did they not get the message? What is going on? Like, I can't do it. Because in your head, you're just like, man, the first time I must have just been extra witty. I can't repeat that again. And I, I, I don't want to get involved with this person, even though it's just like a friendship, because the more they get to know me, the less they're going to end up liking me. And I just can't handle more rejection in my life. It's kind of like that. Some of you that are this style are like, oh my God, it is like that. And those of you that are not are like, oh my God, these people are crazy. <laughs> and I will tell you, like, this is the most neurotic of the four styles. And I feel like I can say that because it's the one I probably relate to the most. But essentially what is happening in the, the hearts and minds of these people is that they crave connection, but they're also really scared of it. Because in their minds, people are unpredictable, and it feels like rejection is always inevitable. And, and also, like, when people learn things about you, they're probably just going to use that later against you to hurt you. And chances are that they don't really even like you anyway, because they're playing an angle. Not really. Not the real you. Having this attachment style is like living with this never-ending, anxiety-ridden imposter syndrome. This feeling like you don't really belong in any room that you're ever in. And that's a lot to carry around. And the reason they feel this way is because those with a shifty or scattered attachment style, they really believe that closeness is the result of being a better person than you could ever be, requiring you to keep others from discovering and be dis being disgusted by the real you. It's this idea that like, uh, there are people who deserve connection and closeness, but you are not one of them. And if only you could improve and become a better person, maybe you could be deserving of the thing that it seems like everybody else has. But it feels like you're never going to be able to get there. 
And every relationship ends up feeling like this, this dance of pulling people close, then panicking about how close they are, and then pushing them back away again, and then feeling lonely, and then trying to pull them close once more. And the cycle just keeps going and going and going. So I want to just give you sort of a diagnostic of what this looks like. So if you're trying to wonder, like, what, how would someone that has this style behave? Or if you're still not convinced that this is you, how would you self-diagnose yourself? Um, people with this style often erratically alternate um, between sort of like demanding closeness or forcing distance. Like, let's hang out, we have to hang out, let's get together, and then they just ghost you after that for two weeks and then they wanna get together again. Um, they're at home with chaos and are oftentimes uh, sort of subconsciously drawn to dynamics and people that stir up chaos. They have a hard time understanding and honoring personal boundaries, both their own and other people's. They give the impression that everyone is either their favorite person ever or completely dead to them. It's kind of extreme in the way that it goes. They are constantly scanning the words and actions of other people for signs of betrayal. They live in a fearful anticipation of rejection and, and tend to run away from what they see as inevitable. They often send mixed messages. I hate you. Don't leave me. I'm absolute trash, but probably a little bit better than you, right? And it leaves you sort of like wondering, well, which is it? And to, in their minds, it, it's probably both at the same time. They're either very compliant or very combative. They either completely mute their feelings or seem to be drowning in them. They see themselves as irreparably flawed, damaged, or broken at their core. They believe that anybody who likes them either doesn't really know them or is probably lying to them about it. They're prone to anxiety and depression and escaping into addictive behavior to numb out. And they often find fictional characters easier to connect with than risking intimacy with real people, right? And that may sound weird to you, but like, even if you're not this style, you've had that moment before, right? Where you get really sucked into a show and it feels like those people are your friends and then the show comes to an end and you're like, now who am I gonna hang out with? And they're fake people from Netflix, you guys. This is how this sort of style works. And, and you're probably at this point picking up that these are people in this type that are full of extremes and contradictions. I think a big question when we see how people are is how did they get to be this way? And for this particular style, fear is often a big part of their upbringing. Whether it's some sort of trauma or neglect or abuse in their story, um, there's something about their caregivers' words and actions that didn't always match up or weren't consistent from one day to the next. And so it sort of leaves you, especially as a kid, with this confusion of like the same behavior may earn you an ice cream cone one day and a slap in the face the next day. And so you don't really know like what behaviors are triggering what reactions and why. And it leads you to just be confused about how connections work. Relationships start to seem unsafe and unpredictable to you. And the message that you end up internalizing is you are an inconvenience. There's a problem in your connections with everyone, and that problem is you. You are unlikable, and you are unworthy of closeness and connection. And walking around with that internalized belief about who you are and how connections work 
can be devastating to your life as a whole. You see, when, when our needs, which we all have, regularly go unmet, we can find ourselves feeling guilty for having them at all. And some of you have found yourself in this place where um, the things that you want and need from relationships have been like pushed away and rejected and mocked for so long that you're like, maybe having needs is bad and weak and wrong. And a lot of times, those of this type end up thinking like, maybe if I sacrifice enough, maybe if I shame myself enough, I can eventually turn into someone that other people actually want to be around. But no matter how much you do, it never feels like enough. Now, this makes me think of one particular character in the Old Testament who I think every time I dive into their story, I'm amazed with how many shifty traits they actually have. And I don't think it's surprising when you consider how their story begins. And I want to just sort of draw you into this world because if these relational types are really the sort of uh, buckets of the way we all see how interactions and connections work, that means they've extended back since there were relationships and connections. And I want to just give you an example of someone of this style uh, from Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15 it's a character by the name of Moses. And uh, this is how his story begins. Um, Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Pharaoh, who's like the, the, the king or so of, of ruler of Egypt, gave this order. When the Hebrew women give birth, if the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. One Hebrew woman gave birth to a son, and she saw that he was special and she kept him hidden. Okay, so first of all, think about the high-stress environment that this person was born into, right? Fear and panic were the norms, like in the environment that this kid came into. It's also like a lot of mixed messages that they're receiving. You are so special. No one can ever see you. Right, that's confusing, Eventually, this mom floats this kid down the river, the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and she feels bad for him, and she adopts him, which is kind of bizarre because uh, they're just supposed to let these kids die. Um, and so he grows up um, being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And so on one hand, he lives in a palace and is in many ways pampered. And on the other hand, everybody else who lives in the palace treats him like he doesn't belong there and hates that he's there and makes sure that he knows that he's less than. So for him, all growing up, he has a foot in both worlds, but feels like he doesn't fit in either, which creates a lot of confusion. Think about how like, confused you would be about who you are and where you fit in if this was your beginning. Like his entire life, the Egyptians hate him because he's a Hebrew, and the Hebrews hate him because they see him as a traitor who's living in luxury while they're all slaving away all day. So it seems like nobody likes him. And everybody in his orbit treats him differently based on who's watching at the moment. So he never really knows what to expect, and he begins to assume that maybe it's his fault. 
Like he can't trust and he has no idea what to expect from anyone, so he keeps everybody at a distance. But as happens, the loneliness is excruciating. And some of us, we grew up similarly. And what happens is we, we become erratic as a result of that upbringing. Because we become erratic when we can't be alone, but we believe that we're too unlovable to let anyone get too close. And so we begin our push-pull cycle and never finding equilibrium. And of course, one of the most erratic things that Moses in this story does is he goes from taking a walk one day to committing a murder and then running away. It's crazy. It's a crazy story. Here's what actually happens. Uh, This is found in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, When Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. He saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body. The next day, Moses saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend? And the man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? You gonna kill me too? And Moses was afraid and fled to the wilderness. So think about how erratic this behavior is. He goes from, I'm invincible, I'll do whatever I want to. Don't mess with my people. To the next day, like, I should probably get out of here and never come back again. But it's not even after that, like, that he got everything all put together. And even though God used him powerfully over the course of his life and he changed history, he continues his push-pull cycle with his approach with God and others and life for the rest of his life. Like he goes out into the wilderness and he encounters God in this scene where there's a burning bush and he tells God, you know, here am I. Like, do whatever you want with me. And then God's like, maybe I could do this with you. And then he's like, don't send me. It's literally the next sentence that he says. This guy's like, basically his path in life is he's either leading a nation of people or living in the woods or wilderness by himself in a tent and speaking to no one. Pretty big extremes. He's either calmly sort of reciting instructions to people about how to live and what God thinks about them or screaming at the people and breaking things, which he does multiple times. He's either accessible to everyone, which his father-in-law calls out, like, why do you just, you're, you, like, you're overdoing your, it, and he either is just doing that, or he just disappears for 40 days at a time on the side of a mountain. He says to God on multiple times, like, when God asks him to do something, he's like, who am I to do this? I'm nothing. I'm nobody. And then God's like, I'll give you help. And then Moses is like, I don't need help. I'll just do it myself. And then he tries to do everything himself after saying that he's not worthy of doing anything. There's multiple times where he like goes to God and God's upset with the people and wants to discipline them. And Moses begs God not to do anything to these people. He defends the people to God. And then, like, then immediately after that, he goes and yells at the very people that he was just defending. Erratic. And maybe some of this like, surprises you because Moses is you know, one of the greatest spiritual leaders in biblical history. But this attachment style isn't all bad. None of them really are. It also produces this set of of strengths or high points because those who are shifty or scattered also end up developing some really interesting abilities. They often have this ability to grow calmer and more competent as chaos increases. 
So like as things are getting crazier around them, everyone else is like, oh no. And they're just kind of like, they're like, I've been anticipating this chaos for years now. I feel the most in control than I ever have before. I know what to do. Now you guys are experiencing on the outside the internal chaos I experience every day on the inside. I feel at my baseline, right? They, they often have this ability to see past the facades that other people present. A lot because they're very suspicious of everyone. And so when people are faking things, they're like, nope. And so they're very good at sort of seeing through what people are trying to present and getting to the heart of things. They're often able to identify and engage with the wounded and marginalized around them. Oftentimes, people of this type have this way of entering into a room and instantly being drawn to the people that need connection or who have been pushed away from others and developing an immediate clicking with those people. They have this way of leveraging their awareness, hyper-awareness and their intensity to make other people feel seen and special. Part of the reason people are drawn to people of this type is that when they shine the spotlight of their attention on you, there's nothing as magical. It's amazing. It really is. Because there's something charismatic about them that feels significant when they pay attention to you. And they also often have this ability to transform their inner turmoil into something that is helpful and relatable for other people. This chaos that's churning in them, they can channel it into something that will make everybody's lives around them a little bit better when they're in a healthy place. You can see, like if you have these traits, why God would choose Moses to lead and why God would put so much um, responsibility on Moses' shoulders because God clearly trusts him. But just because God trusted Moses doesn't mean that Moses felt trusted by God. Because that is a part of the way this style works. And some of us, we feel the same exact way when it comes to God. No matter what people tell us about how God sees us or what God thinks about us or what God wants to do in and through us, we just can't believe them. Because in our minds, we really think like, God may love me, but he doesn't actually like me. I'm a disappointment. God hates being around me. But I mean, he's trapped himself, right? I mean, he accidentally said that, you know, he loves everybody and I'm part of everybody, so he's obligated because there's nothing really good about me. But maybe, maybe if God sees that I hate myself as much as he hates me, maybe if I can beat myself up and clean myself up just enough, maybe he will have pity on me and come close to me. Like the only way that I could get God to be pleased with me is to eradicate all traces of me. And for some of us, our church experiences have only really served to reinforce this fear in us. And so we find ourselves going to God and telling him how sorry we are. And it's genuine. But we're not just apologizing for what we've done. We're apologizing for who we are, for the mistakes that we are for the irreparable, broken, disappointing people that we are. And we're gutted. And oftentimes we're told like that it's going to be okay because you know, God will forgive you and, 
and, and, and he'll actually absolve your sin. I mean, he won't like you, but like at least you will get a pardon. We're told things like Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, which I think is actually a really helpful verse in a lot of ways. If you declare that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And I want to tell you, like, I, I believe this. I think this is amazing. But I just want to put to you, like, is really being justified and saved all we want from a relationship? I don't think it is. I think there's something that we want much more than that. I think the longing of the human heart that is there because God put it there is not just to be acquitted of all of our wrongdoing in some divine courtroom. We want to be invited into a family. We don't just want to escape punishment. We want to experience connection. We don't just want to be declared righteous. We want to be wanted. Because the truth of the matter is, we need all of it. We need both salvation and connection. And that's exactly what God wants to give us. But if you have this style, it's hard for you to believe that could ever be true. And I, I think that we have sold the, the good news short. It's not just that Jesus died to save you. It's that God has always liked you. And he will continue to, even if you never change. I want you to hear this again. I want you to internalize what I'm actually saying. Because to a lot of you, this feels like a lie. And this could not be a more accurate description of the way the creator of the universe sees and feels about you. It's not just that Jesus died to save you, to set you free. It's that God has always and will always like you, even if you never change. Listen, if you saw someone drowning that like was a sworn enemy, because you're a decent person, you may dive in and like save them. That doesn't mean you like them now or that you want to hang out every day, be BFFs, have them move in and build a bunk bed in your basement and share it with them. It doesn't mean that at all, right? It just means that you tried to do a thing that you thought was right. But God is different than us. Listen to the reason that, that one of the psalmists gives for God's desire to rescue and to save us. He says this, Psalm 18, verse 19. God led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. In other words, God's default feeling toward you isn't disappointment or disgust, it's delight. Delight, in case it's like not a word that you use a lot, I don't, right? This is delightful. You know what you are? You're a delight. I, I don't, that's not really something I say a lot. I'm, I'm open to working it in. We'll try. 
But delight is the feeling a really close friend gives you. Right? When you have a friend that you're, is like your best friend, you're drawn to them. And you don't just like them because like they're perfect. In fact, like a lot of their imperfections are some of the best parts of them, right? You love their quirks. You love that you can be yourself around them. You feel relaxed and unguarded and unselfconscious. And what is powerful about the delight that comes from a friendship is that you may be born into a family, but you choose your friends. It's a decision, not an obligation, which is why I think it's really important to be told and to understand that this is how God sees you as a friend that he chose and delights in. Like we see this over and over again in scripture. In fact, the very first story that we're told about God is that he creates two people and the first thing he does is he takes walks with them and he talks with them. It says, as a friend would. God is like, I just made some people. And in our minds, we're just like, and I, they need to get to work and do the right thing. But God is like, oh, I just made some people. Maybe we could like hang out and just like talk and like tell jokes and stuff. That'd be fun. Oh, gosh. I love these people. They're so different. I, th- I, it's great. They're delightful. Abraham, who's one of the sort of the founders of the patriarchs of our faith, he's called the friend of God in both the Old and New Testament. Christ followers in the New Testament are referred to as the friends of God. Paul says this to us. Even Jesus references us this way. And then Jesus, like he ends up with this, this nickname as the friend of sinners, which is what he walks around with, meaning that he enjoys the company of these sinful people often. And I just want to clear something up. It's not like Jesus only hung out with like retired prostitutes and tax collectors. Right? Like Jesus is hanging out with present day embezzlers and working girls, which means where they're coming from and where they're going are not places that Jesus would be like, thumbs up. And he knows this. And for knowing like what they're up to, he says very little to them about it. And it's not because he approves of it, it's because Like them having it all together, them thinking exactly like him or doing everything he wants them to do is not a condition of their friendship because Jesus had this ability to enjoy a person's presence without being preoccupied with all their flaws. And you need to know this about how God sees and experiences you. When you're hanging out, he's enjoying and delighting in you. He's not like, well, I can't even enjoy this because I know what you did. And until you change, we're not friends. God is not that shallow. And here's what is is crazy to me. A lot of the people that that hung out with Jesus did change. Why? Because sometimes knowing that you're accepted enables you to let go of the the self-destructive things you thought you had to do to earn love. Dr. John Balby, who's like the, the sort of the godfather of attachment theory, says, we are only as needy as our unmet needs. What does this mean? It means that like, like people act out and do different sorts of like destructive things because they want connection and they don't know how to get it. And it is not like screaming at their sin, but addressing the insecurity underneath it that actually sets them free. 
Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't draw any boundaries. God frequently calls us to holiness, but there's a huge difference between a God who demands perfection before he will pull you close and a God who comes close, wraps you in his perfection, and then helps you step by step to become a better version of you. But what happens if we, we don't grow enough or we don't grow fast enough or we don't change the things in the order that maybe some of the, the people who go to our church thinks we should change them in? Is that, that, that's when he bails, right? No, not according to Scripture. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, this echoing of something that God has already said several times in the Old Testament, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. And maybe some of you are, are wondering, like, well, I, I, don't, I don't get it because if I'm so worthy of closeness, then why don't I feel like I am? And the real reason is you feel unlovable because you were told and treated like you were unlovable, not because you actually are. And that experience has become your reality. And this is why if you have a shifty style but you want to come, become more secure, I want to suggest to you that you adopt practices in your life that will reinforce that true closeness is being seen and liked as you are right now. Not liked for your potential. Not liked because somebody doesn't really see you and doesn't really know you, and when they do, they won't like you. Not liked because you will change and what you can do for them in the future, but you are seen and liked as you are right now. So what would this look like? I want to give you a few just quick examples so you don't have to brainstorm these on your own. One, I would say, is to meditate and memorize scriptures that frame God as a close friend who chose you and likes you. I think if this is your style, memorizing scriptures that reiterate to you the truth that is hard for you to believe will really help your soul. I would also suggest that you sit down, it's going to feel awkward and uncomfortable, and you make a list with people who really know you well, the things that God like delights in about you. And every single one of them, when they tell you, you're going to be like, that's not true. Not, you're lying. That's not true. But it is, and you need to internalize it. You need to see it and read it and echo it to yourself. The third thing I would say is to make time to play, laugh, joke, dance, and be silly with others without agenda or judgment. Without judgment on yourself and without judgment on them. Like, because there is not this thing that if people catch you slipping up, then you're a waste, the next thing is to incrementally increase time with others where you know you're safe, but you're afraid you're not. And what I mean by this is uh, when you have this style, you don't feel like you belong in any room. And if there are people insisting that you do and they want you there to don't bail the moment that you get that feeling when you know that you are actually safe among those people intellectually, but you don't feel so emotionally to hang longer than feels comfortable so that your body can get used to being in a place where you are safe. And even though you know it, you will begin to feel like it as you reiterate and build these experiences. And the last thing is to do something weekly for the sheer joy of it, not to learn, accomplish, or achieve, but just to be. And toward the end of Moses' story, he does something really stupid. And because of it, he is unable to enter the promised land. This is this place that he has been pushing towards. 
His whole life has been focused on going there and leading people there. This is his ultimate goal. And his erraticism, like, gets the best of him, and he's not able to go in. And it feels like a waste. I think we can look at his life and be like, man, he worked all that time, and he didn't get to do it. But I would argue that what made Moses' life meaningful wasn't anything he accomplished. It was the intimacy he experienced. There's this line in Exodus chapter 33 that says that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one does with a friend. I think the thing that actually repairs Moses, the thing that gives him meaning, the thing that actually made him feel worthwhile wasn't that he was able to stack up all these accomplishments and get other people to approve of him or be impressed by him. It was allowing himself to be pulled close by God. It was allowing himself to believe that God saw him worthy of a friendship with him. And God does this with him not because he earned it, but because God liked him and wanted him close. And the thing I want you to internalize in your heart today, whether this is your style or not, I want you to hear, I want you to internalize in the depths of your being that God likes you and he wants you close. That God's expectation is not that you beat yourself up and shame yourself into becoming better so he will like you. You are not working for his like. You already have it. The things God wants to do in you are for your benefit because they would help you. But God is not standing by demanding you do or be something different to be held close. And I hope that today as we wrap this series that you have a sense, regardless of your style, that God is truly enamored with you that God wants to be close to you and that there's nothing you have to do to earn it. That you have been invited into the family, that you haven't just been pardoned, that you've been brought close, that you're not just declared righteous, you're wanted. Would you bow your heads with me across this room as we pray? God, I am grateful for your love in our lives. Thank you for how you made us. Thank you for the fact that we are not all the same. Thank you for the fact that we are interesting and quirky. Thank you that you love us all as we are. Now, there are things about us that you would love to see change and evolve and move forward because it would be good for us and the people around us, but we're not doing any of that to earn anything from you because everything we want relationally from you is a gift you give. God, I pray that as we exit this room today, that what we feel wash over us is your delight. That what we experience with you over this next week is a friendship where we can be ourselves, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And no matter what we show you, you're not surprised. You already knew, and you still like us.
Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.